Hi, welcome to Tender Socialists, where we talk about fashion and dating, and isn't there something else we're supposed to talk about? I'm forgetting it. Politics. Oh, oh, okay, yeah, okay, <laughs> so politics, so fashion, dating, and politics. Anyway, yes. I'm your host, Abby, and with me from a po- across the pond, or girl boss the pond, is my co-host. <laughs> I'm Meg. So for this episode, we're going to be going over some pretty interesting stuff about furry comrades, Um, but we're also (laughs) going to be letting you get to know us a little bit. And so anyway, Meg, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Meg. I'm a commie lesbian living in London and the east of England. I'm a politics student at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies, and I work part-time as a bartender and a writer. Cool. Yeah, so I'm Abby. I'm also a commie lesbian. Uh, I do freelance writing as well as food delivery. And I've had interest in fashion for like six years. And I've been an activist for five. And I also like to paint and make jewelry and generally just like make things. Yeah. Now, before we get started, like into the actual topics today, there's apparently this dating app called Tinder. And I haven't heard of it, but my lawyer was telling me about it. And so, like, we have to just say that we're, like, not affiliated with this quote-unquote Tinder dating app. Uh, And nothing we say on the pod, like, reflects any of their views or whatever. But I've never heard of that dating app. Yeah. No, I do. (laughs) So, in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite cute, cuddly, 135-pound rodent that the Catholic Church considers a fish – the capybara, and specifically how capybaras are currently engaged in class warfare in Argentina. Um, Nordelta in Argentina is a super rich gated community in Buenos Aires, and it's known for its like gorgeous views, massive houses, and it's like protected by two massive barbed wire fences looking very much like a certain wall in Berlin. This is presumably to keep the residents of the surrounding smaller houses and shanties from getting too envious. Um, Google Earth, you can go in it quite easily and there's no street view for the actual gated community. Like it's private technically, but the main road that the gate is on is on there. And it's really striking how protected it is and how different the surrounding area looks. This is like the the Beverly Hills or the Knightsbridge of Argentina, if you can imagine such a thing. 25,000 of Buenos Aires' richest and most famous live here. They even have their own shopping mall and flag, which is like a mini micronation. It's quite wild. Yeah, yeah. I saw it too. Like, not only do they have like a flag for the gated community, but they have like flags for each neighborhood, which is oh my god, it kind of gives you an idea of like how big each neighborhood is. I mean, it's 25,000 people, it's like it's like a city, you know? Yeah, it's really crazy. And the I, I also looked on Google Earth, and you know, it's like this there's just like this highway there and on one side you have like all these little tiny farmhouses and it just looks like pretty poorly kept and on the other side you just have these massive houses behind you know like ridiculous security measures so yeah (laughs) so like they built the entire development on wetlands uh it's the river piranha and It's also made headlines recently because it's at record lows. Like, I mean, a lot of, you know, like climate change is causing some pretty drastic events as far as like rivers drying up. (laughs) And yeah, the River Piranha was making headlines because it's at like record lows. It's like completely dry in some areas. And it's the River Piranha is second in size in South America only to the Amazon, which kind of gives you an idea of like how impactful that is. Mm. So like the... The entire housing development is basically built on like a swamp or wetlands. And they have like cattle farms and soy farms, which soy is, you know, used to feed the cattle. And it's just like really devastated the ecosystem there. And it's like Nordelta itself is kind of like a microcosm of like developers' arrogance and just disregard from the earth, from the cattle farming to building like this lake gated community you know it's just like they have complete ignorance of how the earth works 
yeah like it's quite like it's like a microcosm of like how we view like the rich and also how humans view like our superiority kind of like it's kind of a very interesting crossover of of both I got this really great quote from ecologist Enrique Vialis, and he says, wealthy real estate developers with government backing have to destroy nature in order to sell clients the dream of living in the wild, because the people who buy those homes want nature, but without the mosquitoes, snakes, or carpinchos. This is Abby doing Meg's voice, by the way, because we messed up in post. <laughs> and it's just about the, this, this sense that you want the the aesthetic of living outside and it's very kind of commercialized and exists in this kind of 21st century gaze when you're doing things on a very surface level but um the the world doesn't work like that I'm afraid right right and I think too like I've seen like ads for like resorts and stuff like that and it's always this idyllic like beach community (laughs) and like a lot of um resorts and like islands in the caribbean places like that they have their entire economy is just like based on tourism because of this idea of this like false idea of nature Mm. you know where it's like palm trees and and white sand beaches and all this stuff but in reality like in the off season they're devastated by hurricanes and stuff like that but they still have to keep up this image you know It'd be interesting to see, like, I don't I don't have the figures, but how long people actually stay there once getting to the gated community? Like, once you're sold this dream, like, what's the average move-out rate for these people? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, too, like, the whole thing is the reason why there's, like, so many people moving there is because it's, like, there's not that many, like, good places to live in Buenos Aires, but if you have the money, you move there because it's safer and, you know, the houses are nicer and everything. So, like, I think they're probably, I would I would say, you know, without looking at the data, that there's probably not a ton of people that move out of there. But that also kind of, like, represents how capitalism forces us into into these situations where we're, like, separated from the realities. And if you don't have the resources, you are just, like, separated from the people who are you know able to escape that you know yeah yeah and so this is where the capybaras come in and this like idyllic world which it really isn't of nor delta has been thrown into disarray by our friends the capybaras who have found like this is like the one place that's left in these wetlands where they can like have their families and be safe you know because basically they used to be up like all in the wetlands, like they had territory all over there. And now they're just like, there's very few areas that aren't like cattle farms or soy fields. And those aren't really good habitats for capybaras. So our Delta has, you know, this, this pseudo nature setting and mm-hmm. that's a lot better for the capybaras than, you know, like soy fields. So they're just like digging up yards and shitting everywhere, which is pretty funny. You know, like some people have said that it's a capybara invasion, but it's not really, you know, it's like these capybaras has been there for thousands of years and they're just like, it's like chickens coming home to roost, you know, uh, but capybaras instead. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, this whole idea, the whole, because obviously Twitter absolutely loved this. I think that's why we both heard this and it's, uh-huh it's it's kind of just like it's people still have this mindset that it belongs to the rich people that live there even when they're reporting on this story that like completely highlights how that mindset got us in this problem in the first place Uh because like the whole idea of it being an invasion just really confuses me because it's like have we learned nothing like (laughs) from the capybaras right listen to them you know yeah in addition to the way that like the the capybaras have been displaced and the impact that like North Delta is having on like the ecosystem as well as the the, the wildlife and the entire area except North Delta is now subject to flooding because North Delta no longer absorbs water as it was supposed to um so like the the working class families who obviously cannot afford to live in North Delta they they they're like the flooding is kind of 
exclusively happening in in their areas where like poor and working class families live and um so in addition to how nor delta is symbolic of the ruling class it's really kind of kind of a proxy class struggle of argentina and i don't know if i was someone whose family and life was completely uprooted by this luxury like faux wildlife reserve for rich people effectively i would feel <laughs> I, i don't want to diminish the struggle of any of them but this might be like a quite cathartic to see like yeah in in any sort of way i think that'd just be fantastic right yeah i mean we all get like schadenfreude and we see rich people suffering yeah you know? yeah. Um, yeah it's like like if you saw like jeff bezos was just had his entire like basically just raw sewage just like <laughs> pumping out of the ground at all of his mansions at once and he just like couldn't avoid it that would just be hilarious you know so this is He's a so little good. bit different since it's just like capybaras digging up yards and stuff but you know it's still really funny uh and i think that's why you know the memes have gone absolutely viral and just like there's even like murals in uh, in Buenos Aires and other parts of Argentina that are depicting the capybaras with like the uh, rich people's heads on stakes and stuff like that, <laughs> which is just like really funny. That's great. I I just love that. Like every every revolution needs some sort of a symbol, right? And yeah. maybe the Argentinian revolution will have capybaras. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing too. Is that like. In South America, but in anywhere, uh, but like in South America, I think it's especially like depicted in the media and, and stuff like that. There's a lot of like violent repression of any sort of like revolutionary or uh, protest activity. And so yeah. like the capybaras, it's a little bit different because not only are they protected by the state, like they're, they have uh, the environmental agencies have issued orders that you know like the residents can't even touch the capybaras there's like you know they're animals so it's like it's a lot different than you know like say you're in the downtown buenos aires uh with you know a couple hundred people protesting you know you're not gonna have the cops show up so like it's just like a yeah there's just like nothing they can really do about it at this point you know so I don't know it's just it's just a lot different like there's some people that, in the uh, North Delta that have said they're going to shoot the capybaras and stuff like that but there's like <laughs> serious legal repercussions to that you know not only um, just like environmental regulations but also just like shooting at all in like a gated community that has like 25,000 people it just doesn't really make any sense imagine the fallout if that was to happen have the police yeah. storming it well i know you probably wouldn't to be fair but right. um yeah the, the the only parallel i can see is in 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 england i'm not sure about the rest of the uk but swans um it's illegal to kill any swans because they're technically oh, uh -huh. all owned by the crown and right. it's like could in a potential english revolution of the future would the swans be something <laughs> that we'd have to utilize in order to have protection at the beginning <laughs> who knows that's But, funny yeah. that is interesting i didn't actually know that about the capybaras being protected that's really yeah cool. i guess they're not like actually protected like on a national level i know in other countries and, and other parts of Argentina, they hunt them and stuff. But I know like in this North Delta and uh, like the wetlands of the river Piranha, they they're definitely protected. because I think they, the national like environmental agencies kind of realize like that they're destroying their habitat and that, you know, they need to like have a place to go. So. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's been just like so much media coverage of it. Like there's there was an article in The Guardian and several other like in, there's like some environmental monitors that have published articles about it. And yeah, so it's like I know I have a friend in Brazil and th the memes like really spread quickly there as well, <laughs> um, which is interesting because like in South America, like there's more like 
cultural exchange and stuff between the Spanish speaking countries. So like the fact that it like immediately started spreading to Brazil as well, which is a Portuguese speaking country that was kind of interesting, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So that, like the memes, there's like, there's like the murals and stuff that they're doing, which are really cool. Like there's just so many memes. There's uh, memes of like a uh, capybara holding a gun and uh, with a <laughs> Soviet flag behind him. And it says peace was never an option. That one actually came out of Brazil. They're just like going completely viral. And, you know, like you're saying, that's like a symbolic thing for people to rally behind. And mm-hmm. they're inspiring people everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Like that's one of the things, especially with the with the internet as well. Like, like it, it came from a Spanish speaking country, like immediately to a Portuguese speaking one. But we're both in like English speaking countries. It's like, it's 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 ridiculous how we've found out about this, and it's such it's technically such a small community, like geographically and population wise, and it's right. still spreads so fast because it, I think it like really resonated with people in a lot of way, like everyone kind of has this sense of like okay why would you build a gated community on a wetland and while they might not be able to articulate that into like like kind of class struggle narrative the fact that this is happening like everyone is is celebrating i think and it kind of resonates everywhere because obviously it's an international kind of um problem that you're seeing on a micro scale right right and i think it also kind of highlights like how the internet, you know, it makes us more connected, like on an international level. And while the, you know, like security agencies will use it for repression, it also connects us in a way that we weren't connected before, because like, like 20th century, a lot of internationalism was just like strictly through communist movements and communication through like communist parties. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, it's like more like you can have friends in, you know, halfway across the world that you talk to every day. And yeah. it wasn't like that before, for sure. So I think like, it's kind of created a new type of solidarity between people, while it also has its drawbacks, for sure. Yeah, definitely agreed. I think like the internet, while it can be like because let's face it like the internet is how we met technically like uh-huh. although we were in the same city at the time it's like i think it can be you this is kind of off topic in terms of capybaras but i think the internet can be like a very useful tool but it can also be very dangerous because it can open people to a lot of like ideas without scrutiny and criticism in the way that i just don't think we would have had the scale or the technology for that to really have been a problem in the 20th century right but, um, yeah, because I know like one thing that's really been a problem in the past few years or at least been highlighted in the past few years is how like if you Google something like there's a lot of culture of like saying, um, I'm not going to explain this to you, Google it, you know, and that can be kind of yeah. dangerous because like if you Google a lot of things, you'll end up getting like right wing propaganda like, I don't know how Definitely. you change that really because Google is, you know, it's like it's a mega corporation, you know. Exactly. And it's like the kind of bias that you would put into a Google search when you're looking for a question. Like if you already have kind of the answer, you're going to phrase the question differently and that will give you different results. Or say you see an advert because you've got targeted adverts on social media because that's a really, really big way of um, like companies profiteering off people now. Um, And obviously that changes your perception. And it's kind of this idea I've heard it thrown around a lot in the last few years that we're all having very individualized experiences online because uh-huh. it was also tailored to us right yeah that's a very good point mm-hmm. I also think too like this kind of segues into um what I was about to talk about which was that the in Argentina they had this neoliberal government that was in power mm-hmm. for like four years and basically if you don't know much about the history of Argentina for a long time, they had the Peronists that were in power, and they were like they're like pretty progressive, like I would say like liberal progressive. And there's some like different schools of thought within that movement that are like more socialist, more social democratic. All kind, there's like a lot of mm-hmm. diversity in it. But basically, for like 50 years, they that group had been in power, and then anyway, in 2015, Mauricio Macri got elected, elected on a centrist platform by basically a neoliberal. And Mm -hmm. that really, like, 
destroyed the economy in Argentina because they had had pretty good management of it and like they stayed out of like the OAS and things like that. It was just a lot better when the Peronists were in power, but um, Macri got uh, elected in 2015. And uh, in addition to just like screwing up the economy, he was listed in the Panama Papers. He was, I think he was like the head of a bank or something prior to being elected. And he disappeared protesters and supported Guaido in Venezuela and the coup in Bolivia. Which, interestingly, uh, yesterday, I think it came out that after the coup in Bolivia, the Mexican Air Force reported that their plane that they used to help uh, Evo Morales get uh, asylum was actually targeted by the Bolivian Air Force with missiles. So I thought that was, like, interesting context for, like, how bad the coup in Bolivia (laughs) was. So anyway, Macri is just a really bad guy, and people in Argentina are trying to recover from these like neoliberal policies that were um, just like really impacted a lot of people. So they just have these capybaras that they can, you know, be happy Mm. about and uh, rally around. Yeah. It's like, um, so obviously like this also goes hand in hand with like the, the citizens in Nordelta becoming so wealthy, like Nordelta is a relatively new community and it's like the reason that it's, it's grown and the reason it's, this is, been been happening is because the fact that people are getting richer goes hand in hand with other people getting poorer and that's why we're seeing in the in the last few years particularly in during lockdown when when some countries had lockdown um and during the pandemic especially you're seeing such a large wealth disparity like it isn't happening just because the rich are getting really rich like the rich are getting really rich because everyone else is getting poorer and like you can see that really like exemplified in this like microcosm of of of, like the entire system i suppose so like not only would his policies have been making like life worse even though he came in on like a moderate kind of pretending to be liberal centrist platform like we all know we all know what that's really code for don't we but right i think yeah it's just worth pointing out that it it's it, it goes both ways sadly yeah yeah and i've noticed that too like here in the u.s like even though we basically had you know the same party in power for ever <laughs> um <laughs> in practice you know just neoliberalism basically since uh reagan you know yeah like particularly in like after the the financial crisis of 2008 and you know you've really had the the really bad part of the wealth redistribution to the rich happening and so you know you see these like i am a delivery driver so i go to all kinds of different neighborhoods and you see you know like i'll have one order that's to a a trailer park and then the next one's to these like $500,000 houses which is a lot here but you know in other areas that would be even more because you have companies like BlackRock that are bidding up houses and and uh, getting the housing market just like ridiculously high and I know like there was a lot of discourse recently around a Twitch streamer uh, who was on the Young Turks uh, Hassan Piker he was uh he bought a like $2 million house and like he makes all of his money from Twitch. And so like, he doesn't really exploit people, but there was like a lot of discourse around like, should a socialist be owning a $2 million house? And I think you have to consider like the housing market has just like really gone up lately. And <laughs> like in, in Los Angeles where he lives, there is like no, there's no houses that are available that are under like 750,000. And you have these big companies like BlackRock and other investment companies that can afford to buy a $2 million house or uh, apartment building or things like that and because they're going to rent them out at really exorbitant rates. And, you know, it's like you have just this ridiculous scenario that's going on where people can't afford housing and you have you people can't afford housing and you have people that are just buying these ridiculous houses at the same time so it's really a crisis yeah yeah like the housing market everywhere is absolutely like abominable and it's like you get these these kind of centrist politicians coming in and it's like oh yeah we'll just introduce rent caps and it's like no we don't 
We don't need just rent camps. We need like a complete overhaul of the entire housing market. Right. And no one, no one really wants to talk about that because there's such discourse around rent caps and like you have a lot of like landlords who are obviously very wealthy, like paying the media to say that this would be absolutely devastating for everyone. And it's like mm-hmm. it. It wouldn't be, but let's let's just go a little bit further. Like, just let's, like push the discourse slightly the other way. Yeah, I know. Here they raised the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour, and so like basically, if you raise the minimum wage, you are going to have just the the costs of everything go up unless you control those costs. Mm-hmm. So as a result, like when I lived here previously, it was like for a, a two bedroom apartment it was like $600 a month. Well now it's going into like 900 to over 1000. Uh I'm lucky and I pay like around 900, but other listings I've looked at are like over 1000, $1200 a month. So, you know, it's really you can't expect these like band-aid fixes for economic problems to like have any real effect and it can actually make it worse so you know like you're saying for the housing market total overhaul for wages total overhaul is needed in order to like have any sort of equity yeah yeah exactly and it's like a lot of these talking points that like centrists make or like small business owners slash like petty bourgeoisie people who are like well, I, I won't be able to afford to pay my workers if you increase the living wage. And it's like, if you increase the minimum wage, I mean to a living wage. And it's it's almost as if, like, perhaps you shouldn't be a small business owner if you can't afford to provide an equitable, like, standard of living for your employees. Like, your desire to own a business doesn't go above that. But right. also, like... It's so easy to dismiss those concerns, but there is real issues with just increasing the minimum wage. Like a lot of, in the same way people talk about rent caps, as I was saying, like they do kind of talk about raising the minimum wage, just this entire panacea. And it just doesn't work like like, like sometimes these petty bourgeoisie people are kind of making a point with without really meaning to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of the economy has like stuff priced into it, like they price in like instability and all that stuff, but they can't like these business owners can't take the concept of having to price in living wages for their workers. And it's just, Mm -hmm. that's really a weird mindset to have. I think, you know, even if you're looking at it from like a, a really laissez-faire economic perspective, you know, so yeah, but anyway, back to the capybaras. One thing I was thinking about too is that there's like a lot of animal rights implications, not just from the capybaras because like it seems like they're protecting them pretty well. You know, the development and other factors that cause the capybaras to come into Nord Delta are, you know, cattle farming and soy farming, which is for the cattle industry. So, you know, it's like this this development it harms not just the capybaras, but the entire ecosystem, lizards and and everything you can possibly imagine that lives in a South American wetlands uh, surrounding Mm -hmm. a river, you know, like basically rainforest. And the animal agriculture is, you know, just a staggering amount of suffering that goes on with that. So like, not only do you have the, the displacement and everything, you just have basically these like they're basically like torture camps for cows and and uh, other animals that that are going on you know so the it's just like a nor delta is just kind of a a very small picture of like how the land is being taken from the animals just for not just for human development but for the animal agriculture and i don't know it's just really unsettling you know so yeah, I think unsettling is the right word because I don't think it's it's spoken it's spoken a lot from an ethical perspective that like oh animal agriculture is bad because like we shouldn't turn animals into commodities which I I fully agree with but also like how inefficient it is in terms of like energy per per like energy and how much that actually gives to humans like the amount of soy and the amount of 
all of the crops that are being grown in that area just to feed the cattle. Like we could feed that to humans and it would feed so much more, so many more calories. But no, instead, like we do this really inefficient process of where we like grow the soy. We we chop down a load of trees. You can see this a lot in other parts of the Amazon as well to grow the soy, to give that to the cows, to then kill the cows, to give that to the humans. Like why right. not just cut out the middleman for the sake of like efficiency space and like and then you've got the ethical implications as well yeah yeah it's kind of like a colonial mindset too because like a lot of the the indigenous cultures in south america they didn't really practice this intensive i mean basically none of them practice this type of intensive animal agriculture you know they relied much more on crops but like if you look at like Brazil, Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, he's been really selling off the rainforest as much as he can, basically, to these these cattle farmers and, and like staple grain farmers. And it's like you, you can't do that. First of all, you have, you know, just like this massive carbon sink in the Amazon and they're just like cutting all that down. So it's like it's like, a, I think, a colonial arrogance, really. Um to say that you know, like this this uh, modern type of agriculture is is uh, what we need to be just like destroying everything that's currently there for you know, and like you're saying that the inefficiency of it is just like it's it's really ridiculous. I think it's like four times the amount of protein that you have to that you uh, have to put into a cow to get this the same uh, <laughs> amount of protein out, and it's like. That's just, you know, like it's like throwing away both money and water and resources, you know, so. Yeah, exactly. Like the point about like kind of colonial arrogance is like because indigenous people's voices are completely marginalized in all of these areas. And like we haven't really mentioned it before, but like the working class communities, they are going to be indigenous people as well. They're being right. displaced by by Nordelta. And I don't know the whole idea that you can. It's it's the whole I know it's such a common phrase amongst the left, but like this whole idea of putting genuinely putting profit over planet, like you really see that in action here. And I think we we there there needs to be more said about that outside of just like snippets and catchphrases because like the snippets and catchphrases aren't going to save the world in 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 the nicest way possible. Like we need more of a deeper understanding of how I'm not I'm not really sure of how this is like a real life ramification like this idea isn't something in the abstract this is affecting people's lives right now. Mhm. Mm like you said the indigenous voices are really marginalized and you know they have thousands of years of of experience has been passed down of how to take care of the earth and sometimes it may not be the most effective thing but usually it's pretty good because it's not worked out too badly for them in the past i study a lot of like ancient agriculture like what we can tell about it anyway based on archaeology and because uh, that's one of my interests and like there was the cahokia civilization and it was like bigger than london at the time that it was at its peak so that civilization collapsed because they were so reliant on uh, corn and they just like would not remediate the soil or anything like that. So, you know, whereas you have other cultures like in the uh, Northwest and Northeast that have just like really taken care of everything and they relied more on, on uh, what was naturally available and very limited like forms of agriculture that were like nitrogen fixing you know like there's the i've always remembered the story of the three sisters which is corn squash and i think beans and anyway the reason they would like plant those like one year they would plant one and then plant another the next year and then the other one or they would plant them together in some cases and one plant will produce nitrogen, one will produce um, other compounds that the, all the plants need to grow. So that way the, the soil never gets depleted of nutrients. And, you know, now you have this like monoculture where you have just these fields that will be like thousands of acres and they're just like all corn or soy and... Mm -hmm. You know, there's not like, like with the pesticide use, there's not even like any native plants or even invasive plants that, that grow in amongst them because that 
you know, will reduce the crop yield. But you have like situations here in the Midwest where you're having like entire fields turned to dust essentially because there's like not only is there a lack of water, but there's just a lack of nutrients in the soil. And that caused the Dust Bowl back in the 30s, uh, which my grandmother uh, moved from Oklahoma because of that. And, you know, it's like we're just like really heading fast into another situation like that, which is really scary. Yeah, the complete the complete lack of, of biodiversity. Like it's it's true because I, I remember um, I think it was in some some video I was watching. But it was about this idea that indigenous populations had a relationship with the land and they saw like the land as an extension of them. It was like where their tribes had lived for, for, for like as long as they could remember kind of thing. And the the fact that because land is like a commodity under capitalism and, and, and by extension colonialism, it's like they don't need to worry about that because like there will just be more land. There'll be further land for them to extend to. And like they'll just be from that just derives further profit. And it's almost as if the, the land, the relationship that we have with land is, is very detrimental. But in, in the lifetimes of like the current ruling class, this really isn't going to appear as much of an issue because Mm -hmm. they can just particularly in like south america like it's a very big continent but like you're going to run out of land you're going to run out of rainforest to cut down eventually right and it's it's almost as if it's going to be a big ramification for the future like not even mentioning global warming and the fact as you said that the amazon and rainforest generally do provide like a carbon sink like that's going to go that's going to affect the entire world like they're called the amazon is like referred to as like the lungs of the planet or something isn't it right yeah and i think too like a lot of a lot of cultures throughout the world, cultures outside of the Western world, they have a lot more emphasis on family and like the future of their family and the, their ancestors and all that. Whereas like we kind of like Westerners are really individualistic. Like we only really care about what happens in our lifetime, you know? Yep. And mm-hmm. like, you know, you have other cultures that are like really focused on providing for their family's future and that's like their main focus so like I think you know like the capitalist um promotion of you know like this this uh type of family where you just like see them a few hours a day or whatever is kind of like really fueled that and I don't know it's just like you said they're not going to have to really deal with it and I think that's such a bad mentality to have you know so yeah definitely but like that's kind of that's kind of like the sorry but I think that's kind of like the working class's job at this point is to kind of remind them that they're going to have to deal with something you know and that's going to be either us or you know some of the effects of of climate change at this point you know yeah exactly and I guess yeah, the fact that, as you said, a lot of a lot of like the Western like nuclear family is centered around this idea of what you can do for your child's future. And I don't necessarily think that like the ruling class in Buenos Aires and, and that part of the world generally have that on their minds necessarily. Like I think they're they're more concerned with their profit at the moment. But if you can say to them like okay that this this isn't go this is going to affect you in your lifetime that's kind of the only way to get through to them so mm-hmm. yeah like deal with the working class revolt or ecological collapse i suppose right so anyway yeah that was i think that was a very good discussion we had on that um, mm-hmm. that's great yeah so all power to the capybaras <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, now we're going to move on to our questions. Uh, we have some great viewer, our, uh, listener questions. I guess at this point, they're not listeners because this is our first episode, but questions from Twitter and Instagram. So our first one is from Yuri on Twitter. And she said, hey, girls, I want an, my outfit to tell people I'm a communist without me having to. Advice? So there's a few options. It's like, it's kind of hard because like, you know, you either go for this like, really hardcore aesthetic like with hammers and sickles and stuff like that or you know more realistically you're gonna want to be more subtle with it so like there's some really cool like anti-fascist streetwear brands particularly based in germany 
they have some really cool designs that are like they'll you know they'll tell other people who know what what uh like the symbology and the stuff like that is but you know won't necessarily be like you know you're walking into like a rural store or something and and it's just like screaming i'm a marxist leninist you know <laughs> so uh, and there's also like some really cool eastern black surplus you can get like i got this uh really nice Ukrainian, uh, or not Ukrainian, Romanian wool felt overcoat from like the 80s. And it was like $40. So you can get some stuff really cheap that way. And it's pretty great. You know, it just really depends on what you're looking for there. Yeah, I I love the idea of Eastern Bloc surplus style. Like it is so popular, particularly amongst Marxist Leninists, and it is relatively unsubtle. But like thrifting is very popular nowadays and they're so easy to thrift just because like so many clothes were made and they've somehow like just been dispersed amongst like Western countries for us to to buy and consume, which is relatively unsubtle in its irony, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, no, definitely German anti-fascist brands, they, for obvious reasons, tend to be quite popular. But I also know of like an irish um communist i'm i'm not sure what party they're affiliated to but they do all of their fundraising for a communist party um called red they're called red threads i've spoken to them before um they're they're equally like ostentatious and they've got such brilliant like modern bold designs and i also think like they do a lot of plus size clothing as well which is really great because you will find with a lot of the eastern block style clothes they were built for um particularly going for like women's fashion they were built for very like small women typically or that's what survived but you can never go wrong with like the typical lenin aesthetic like the long coat the mariner's cap like a few like maybe a red star pin or something like i love that look that's that's perfect but obviously for the cold weather plenty of ways to accessorize like just have fun it's great yeah definitely like I did see red threads on Instagram before and I forgot about them but it's a really good one yeah I don't know have fun with it I think that's the main thing like you know Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think communist uh, aesthetics and stuff have to be like really really like uniform or anything like that but I think more than anything it's like you know particularly you see like with anarchists they have just like this like punk aesthetic you know and that can also you know like kind of loosely tell people that you're kind of like against the establishment you know so yeah yeah definitely uh, like so prol says how to have swag also is it weird to never get over an ex like there's always a bit of feeling left honestly i found swag is more about like your self-confidence than anything and if you don't have much of that you can just like try and give yourself some false self-confidence because that's not bad to do honestly like I've had a lot of times where I did not feel good about myself and I just like really hyped myself up and I was able to like get through social situations and stuff without much much like anxiety or anything so definitely give that a try as far as getting over an ex, I do think it's completely normal to never get over an ex. Like, you know, they, they're a part of your life. Like, there are people that I've, like, gone on, like, two or three dates with that I have not, like, I still have a lot of feeling for, you know. And I think it just, like, really means that you love a lot and, you know, you've really put your heart out there, which can be a bad thing, but don't be afraid of it so much, you know, just like don't compare anybody that you're dating now or in the future with your ex, um, because that can like get you into some really bad thought patterns and stuff. But yeah, like don't don't feel like it's weird or anything. Yeah, I'd really I'd really emphasize all of that, particularly the last part, like it's you're you're not designed to completely switch off your feelings as soon as you 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 leave someone you know like it's okay to still have feelings for someone um but if you genuinely did want to get over get over an ex i suppose like the the typical the stereotype is a rebound but then like you've you've just repeated the whole situation again unless this person is the one your rebound is the one you're going to be with forever so i think it's like don't shy away from the emotions don't pretend you're not feeling it but also 
just just go along for the ride you know like you're going to get hurt in life it's kind of inevitable you're not going to stay with everyone that you date unless you do I don't I don't know but yeah no just just enjoy it yeah I agree and this one's uh from Instagram and it's how to date someone who doesn't share my activism so I would say it depends like what you really mean by this um so like the first thing if they don't share your worldview as in like say for example you're a dedicated socialist and they're at best like a centrist liberal or at worst they're like quite far right or support like the the predominant right-wing party in your country i think you really both both of you need to have introspection into how compatible you really are like i'm not someone who says that you can't date outside your ideology i think that'd be very blinkered um but like I've got I've got a friend and she's she's a very dedicated socialist but she's actually dating like a finance student who happens to also be a member of the conservative party and like they've both said that empathetically like in terms of like how open-minded it's made them and intellectually like they've both benefited a lot and like they they love each other they fell in love what can you what can you do about that you know but generally like your political stances are like reflective of your morality at least to some degree and i think it's important like in from my perspective in a relationship having a compatible worldview to somewhat degree like saying you both care about people and you're not just entirely self-absorbed i do think that is quite important so how reflective you think politics is of that that's that's entirely up to you yeah i think like I've seen on like dating apps and stuff people have in their in their bio, you know, they won't be like, oh, no Republicans or no Tories or anything like that. But they'll be like, you have to believe in basic human rights, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think while people will have like different definitions of that, I think that excludes a lot of people that you wouldn't really get along with. But, you know, um, I've dated people who were like kind of apolitical and I always felt like whenever I tried to talk about politics or anything like that, they were just like shut down, you know, they would Mm -hmm. just like shut off and not talk. Yeah. And on the other hand, I've dated people who were more liberal and, and, you know, basically like I found, you know, that a lot of people don't really have a real grasp of their own politics. And like, if you just like start suggesting, um, like socialist ideas without putting a label on it, they will be pretty, um, they will warm up to it pretty quickly. So like, I mean, if you have, it depends, like if you have someone who's like apolitical, I would say don't worry about it so much. Uh, If you feel like they're not going to support you, like, you know, like let's say you go to a protest and you get arrested or whatever. If you feel like they're not going to support you in a situation like that, then that's kind of concerning. But a lot of people are just like not, they they just like don't know what their views are really and or don't have a label for it. And as a result, they they will say like, oh, I'm apolitical or I'm moderate or whatever. And they just like, a lot of them will be perfectly fine with these other ideas. Like, you know, you even have really conservative people that you start talking about you basically explain socialism to them without calling it socialism or Marxism Mm -hmm. and they're totally they're totally cool with it you know they think they'll be like like I know I've talked to some conservatives and been like you know these workers are getting paid basically nothing for the job that they're doing don't you think that that's wrong and that they should like get what they're putting into their their job and they're like of course yeah or uh don't you think that everybody should have health care? And they're like, yeah, of course. And it's like, so like, they just like, don't even really know what their own politics are, you know, which is concerning, but also like in the, the American and uh, like Western context, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Cause like the media really manufactures consent and uh, makes mm-hmm. us believe things that are completely, completely untrue. So. Yeah, exactly. Like, especially on the point dating a political people like relationships are are wonderful ways to like slightly radicalize people like in the way that you kind of can't do within a friendship so much because you're not as close but if as long as you don't obviously don't enter a relationship with a moderate just with sole aims of radicalizing them like there needs to be some sort of romantic connection there but I think 
like most people are a lot more open-minded to this sort of thing that you think than you think they will be and a lot of people are very happy to change their minds particularly if they realize it's important to you um but if you mean like just in terms of of activism um maybe like i would give a slightly slightly different answer like abby said in terms of you say you were getting arrested at a protest like and you're dating someone who is completely against all of your activism they didn't even want you at the demo like when you woke up in the morning they didn't want you to leave they told you not to kind of thing like that's a very unhealthy relationship but also you kind of need someone who's going to support you like particularly if you don't have many other friends outside of your relationship you're not going to have anyone there to like fall back on like are they going to shut you down in conversation when you're really passionate about something in the news or it's not being spoken about enough or like it, that kind of disconnect can make you feel quite belittled and alone um so it depends how dedicated you are and it just becomes very difficult on a practical level to try and coexist and build something with someone who is so diametrically opposed to or passive about passive and non-open minded um to what is really important and a big part of your life i think worldview does kind of go beyond politics i think politics are like a reflection of worldview you know <laughs> uh, more than anything it's just like a framework for like taking that worldview and putting it into action you know so like if your worldview is closer but your politics aren't necessarily the same i think that's a lot better but like you know if you have like just this completely different worldview then i don't i don't really see it working out too well you know because even if it's just a short term relationship you're going to run into some issues but you know i think you could make it work but it's just like you have to really examine like if it's if it's going to be worth it yeah definitely there are definite ways to make it work like you're really in love with this person for whatever reason and they they don't necessarily share your worldview they don't enjoy you talking about politics like and if you really really want to stay with them like of course you should but you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices in your life you're going to have to maybe not spend as much time on organizing or say like organizing meet in organizing meetings or at actual demos themselves you're not going you're not going to be able to talk about a lot of what you're passionate about within your relationship but just like you're not going to be able to bring up politics or current affairs in the households just make sure that they know that they're equally important or more important to you than your activism and i think like if you both really want it there is space for that to work even if you don't share a world view and by by extension your politics but um it would be definitely be difficult but if you really loved them then then it could work i think yeah yeah for sure well anyway that's all our questions for today so uh, make sure you send any questions you have about dating or fashion or even politics like literally any mm -hmm. questions you have to our Instagram, which is at Tender Socialists. And uh, we also, we're also on Twitter uh, at Tender Socialpod, uh, S O C P O D. Make sure also that you subscribe to our Patreon because uh, it's only $5 a month and you can get bonus episodes. And we even have like a group chat you can join. And well, there's even one, uh, one level of the uh, Patreon where you can like will like actually look at your dating app profiles or your social media and tell you what we think about it and what what we would personally change so mm -hmm. um and like fashion advice and stuff like that so definitely go over there and uh, we'll have some more uh content for you there so anyway thank you so much for listening i had a great time talking about all this stuff and look forward to our next episode where we'll be talking more about fashion, dating, and politics.